You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Hello and welcome to the latest in our podcast series on the new world of work. This is Peter Gumbel from the McKinsey Global Institute, and today we're going to be talking about what history has to teach us about issues of technology and employment. Here to discuss that are Richard Cooper, who is the Moritz C. Boas Professor of International Economics at Harvard University, and Susan Lund, who's a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute based in Washington, D.C. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to start by asking Professor Cooper what the lessons really are. At least from a very superficial point of view, it looks as though technology has tended to create more jobs than it destroys. Is that true? And if it is indeed the case, why is that? Well, first, the historical perspective this issue, which currently preoccupies people, goes back a long way. Technology has been changing for at least seven centuries since the horse collar in Europe, and uh, but it ex- reached a new stage with the Industrial Revolution, starting with the 19th century. And uh, roughly once a generation, we have a near panic by some people because technology is destroying jobs. And it's true that uh, new technology often destroys existing jobs, but it also creates many new possibilities through several different channels. Think of cloth making back in the early 19th century or automobile making in the early 20th century, uh, all kinds of supplementary industries all kinds of new possibilities, and don't forget demand. If goods become cheaper, speaking in general terms, people want more of them. So there may be a much bigger demand for the output, uh, even though the productivity has gone up and per unit output, fewer people are employed. So for all of those reasons, higher incomes, greater demand, supplementary activities to the activity that's being focused on, uh, we've discovered that total employment has increased over the years in spite of concerns, as I say, roughly once a generation about the loss of jobs created by new technology. So to put some numbers on this, we've looked at both productivity growth and employment growth over different time periods in a variety of different countries. And what we find is that since 1960 in the United States, for instance, both productivity and employment have grown in individual years 79% of the time. And in only 12% of the years did we see productivity growth with employment declines. And when you look over longer time periods, say three years, five years, out to 10 years, you see that the number of times that employment actually falls while productivity grows goes down literally to zero um, in the case of the U.S. when you look out at a 10-year period. And indeed, in a five-year period or three-year period, 95% of the time you see productivity and employment growing for all the reasons that Professor Cooper just explained. 
And we see the same pattern in other countries as well. So in China, for instance, when you look at individual years, you see employment and productivity both growing in 77% of the individual years since 1960, but in 98% of the 10-year rolling periods. In Germany and Sweden, we see the same pattern, albeit somewhat lower, um, due to less turnover and other rigidities in their labor markets. But it's very clear from the evidence that, in fact, as productivity grows, you don't see fewer jobs, you see more jobs. Susan, you have just co-authored a report from the McKinsey Global Institute called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained, Workforce Transitions in a Time of Automation. And in that report, you cite an interesting case of the Ford Model T as being an example of how this actually plays out in practice in the workplace. Yeah, the Ford Model T is a good example um, of what Professor Cooper described. So what we see is over a six-year period, the number of Model Ts produced per worker tripled from 8 to 21. So that's productivity. But at the same time, we see that the price of a Model T dropped from more, by more than half, from $950 per car in 1909 to $440 in 1915. So as a result of that, demand for to purchase automobiles just soared. And so rather than declining, employment in the automotive industry soared, and the number of people employed went up, and it was because consumers demanded more of the goods. Okay, Professor Cooper, perhaps you'd like to jump in on that. How is it that autos actually create net jobs? Well, uh, back up a minute, uh, automobiles, the internal combustion engine, destroyed a whole industry. It was called carriages and horses to pull them, right? So there were lots of jobs lost as a result of this new technology, namely an internal combustion engine on wheels. Lots of jobs lost. And as Susan says, even within the automobile industry, in the early days, productivity went way, way up. So output per worker went way up. And so why was there no net loss of jobs? Recall that Henry Ford paid very good wages to his people. That was partly for his benefit. He did not want the high turnover that manufacturing then had. He wanted to keep good workers. But he also said he wanted his workers to be able to buy his product. So incomes of those employed rose, demand for the product, the Model T and other automobiles, also rose. And as Susan said, as a result of the increase in output, despite a a large increase in productivity, employment in the auto industry went up. That's not always the case. You can imagine employment in the industry in which the technology is improving rapidly going down, or, as I mentioned, with carriages, whole industries being destroyed. By the way, that did not take place at once. It took place over three decades. My grandfather still had workhorses on his farm as well as two tractors. So it's a gradual process. But think of the supplementary industries that were created by automobiles, filling stations, automobile repair, and then, of course, the possibilities of living 
further from work, uh, enlarging your housing by moving out where land was cheaper than it was in the central city. And then vacations. With automobiles, you could go many more spaces. So it sounds like what you're saying is that at least some or even many of the jobs that are created by technology are ones that perhaps you couldn't have imagined before that technology existed. That is correct, and that's a central problem with public discussion of this issue. The jobs that are lost are tangible. There are people in them. We can uh, sympathize with the people who lose their jobs and so forth. There's a human dimension. The jobs that are created or made possible have no one in them, and in fact, we don't even know exactly where they're going to be uh, until you know time goes on. My example is the ski industry. Of course, skiing has been around for centuries, probably. But the ski industry is a post-World War II phenomenon in which areas of New Hampshire and Vermont, Maine, uh, Colorado, Idaho, Utah were opened up by the creation of the automobile and the rise of incomes that went with higher productivity. And so here's a whole new industry with ski instructors, people who keep the ski slopes, snowmakers, and the manufacturing of snowmaking machines. None of that was foreseen until the industry started. And even after it started, it was not foreseen how big it would become. So the recreational activities have been vastly opened up by the creation of automobiles and roads, paved roads. Susan, over to you. In the new McKinsey Global Institute's report just published, there's also a case study of computers. Are you seeing the same things with computers that you also saw in the automotive industry? Yes. So it's a good example of the point that we've just made, which is that we can't often foresee the new occupations that are going to be created from a technology so consider the introduction of the personal computer and then after it, the Internet and now mobile phone-based computing and smartphones. If you look back to 1970 in the United States, we tallied up at a very detailed level the number of jobs that were destroyed. So we didn't need as many typists. We didn't need as many office machine manufacturers. Secretaries used to take dictations of memos from executives using shorthand and then go type them up. That wasn't needed with the advent of the personal computer. And increasingly, executives started writing their own memos. So we tally up all the jobs destroyed in the U.S. since 1980 as a result of the rise of personal computing and the Internet, and it's about 3.5 million. So we see declines in a lot of these occupations that were once large and today are very small or non-existent. On the other side of the coin, we see then millions more jobs created directly for computer hardware manufacturers um, and, the, and the input industries like semiconductors. We see growth in computer-enabled industries. So, for instance, software developers, app developers, computer scientists, um, employed in other industry, the whole software service industry. And then finally, we see computers have given rise to a whole range of occupations that 
couldn't exist without them. So think about call centers as a customer calling in to a call center rep. Well, if that person didn't have a terminal in front of them to look up your account information, they really couldn't tell you much. So right now, you know, call center service reps are over 3 million in the U.S. So when we add up all of the jobs created, we find that it's over 19 million jobs have been created as a result of the personal computer and Internet. So on net, we see a gain of 15.8 million jobs in the U.S. over the last few decades. And that's about 10% of the civilian labor force today is in an occupation or job that's a direct result of the introduction of this technology. So, of course, this plays out over decades, but I think it's important to remember in all the discussion of automation today that there will be growth of occupations and industries that it's, we can't even imagine um, that over time will replace the work that's being automated. So both of you have now sketched out very clearly, actually, that there's this idea of sectors declining and others rising at the same time, and that these are sometimes very long-term shifts. But I'm wondering, Professor Cooper, what does this mean for people with different skills? Do these new jobs require different types of skills from the old jobs that disappear? Well, I think that's right, and it can go either way. Susan mentioned in her example people, secretaries, we used to call them, who take dictation, and that was a specialized skill to do it well, reading what you wrote down and being able to type it up. Now we can have people who don't have the skills to take dictation that can produce a product in some respects even better than before. Uh, similarly, with barcoding and scanning in grocery stores or actually all shops, uh, it used to be that at checkout counters, the people had to be able to make change, which made they were comfortable with numbers and doing quickly addition and subtraction in their head. Now we can hire people who don't require numeric skills at checkout counters. So here's a case where technology actually reduced the skill that was required for a particular class of jobs. On the other hand, uh, to program and to make apps requires a high degree of programming skill, and that requires new skills, which we actually barely existed 50 years ago. We had programmable computers, but they were large IBM-type machines and programming has become much more common, but it is a technical skill. Medical equipment now, we can do things that were not possible before, but the medical equipment requires specialized skills, people who know how to use the medical equipment and how to repair it. And so training has to adapt to generate the skills that are required by the new technology. Technology changes the mix of skills. It can actually produce uh, jobs that have lower skills than previously, and they can have produced jobs that require new skills. And therefore, our educational system uh, and workers have to uh, learn the new skills in order to use the new technology, both to use it in application 
and to repair equipment that's broken down. In our research, in our new report, we quantify uh, for 800 occupations within countries how much work could be automated, thereby reducing employment in that occupation, but then at different sources of potential labor demand. So what jobs might be created in the years to 2030? And when we look at the net of those two forces, we see, in fact, that some occupations may decline from today's level, while others are going to grow. And one of the important findings is that twofold. One is that millions of people are going to need to switch occupations. So it's a matter of too many people in jobs that are declining, like assembly line workers in manufacturing, retail cashiers, any kind of work involving a lot of data collection and processing. Machines can do very well, such as a mortgage officer assessing somebody's credit risk. So it's going to be a big transition. Globally, up to 375 million people may need to learn an entirely new occupation. So that's going to be a huge challenge. Um, It means that people in mid-career with children, mortgages, families, and financial obligations are going to need to have training. And this training is not going to be able to be measured in years. It's you know, not going to be feasible for many of these people or most of them to go back for a two-year degree. So we're going to need to rethink how can we take people mid-career on a large scale and help them learn new skills to find jobs in the growing occupation. The thing that we find when we look at which occupations are growing and declining is that in advanced economies, disproportionately, the occupations that are declining are those that require only a secondary degree or less. And the jobs that are growing disproportionately require a four-year college degree or more. And then the sort of technical two-year degrees sit somewhere in the middle of that. But what it means is that we're going to need to rethink education, that Not everyone needs to go to college, but as I said, it's going to be very important to give people opportunities to learn technical skills to get the jobs that are going to be out there um, in a reasonable time frame. I would add to that, though, it's important to keep in mind the time dimension. These technical changes in mass are not going to take place instantaneously. They will be spread over Uh, quite a long period of time. We have the history of the introduction of electricity. We have the history of the introduction of the internal combustion engine, and now more recently, uh, computers. And uh, it takes quite a while before everyone, but think of businesses, adjust optimally to the new technology. And so there's a long period of overlap, typically, there has been historically, between the outgoing industries and activities and the incoming industries and activities. And in the meantime, each of us, all of us, are getting older every year by one year. And new people are coming into the labor force. And so we need, as we think about uh, retraining the labor force, we need to keep in mind that people are entering and retiring from the labor force also one year at a time. And so it's partly reshaping the new labor force relative to the outgoing old labor force. And that uh, can be uh, 
painful or it can be easy, depending not only what the new technology is, but the pace of introduction of the new technology. So the pace is very important in the social impact and economic impact of uh, any new technology. Just to pick up on this idea of retraining, and particularly for people who are in mid-career, do we actually see in history any precedence of this being done successfully? We have many examples uh, of 40-year-olds in the U.S. entering the labor force successfully, and it involves retired military because the military term, except for very senior officers, is typically 20 years for a career military officer. And so every year, the U.S. military turns out a number of people around the age of 40, maybe in their uh, mid-low 40s or late 30s, and these people end up with jobs. Now, have they been trained for the jobs? Yes and no. A career military person gets lots and lots of training. Of course, it's specialized training, but during the course of their military career. Some of that specialized training is transferable more or less directly into the private sector. Think of nuclear engineers, submariners who've trained in nuclear propulsion, uh, and then they go into the uh, nuclear industry, one or another aspects of it. They know a lot because they were trained in the military to learn that sort of thing. But I'm sure there are other cases where technology change is very hard on people in their mid-40s because they either they find it difficult to retrain or were not set up institutionally to retrain such people. We also have successful examples from different countries in Europe today who were laid off and helped them learn new skills and become re-employed quickly. And I would point to both Sweden on one hand and Germany, and they offer a similarly comprehensive suite of services to help displaced workers transition into new jobs, but they do it differently. In Sweden, it's a private sector-led model, and in Germany, it's done through the government, through public labor agencies. In Sweden, the worker security councils are a system in which employers pay a small amount per worker into a private fund so that if the company downsizes and a worker is laid off, that individual goes to the worker security council and they get a whole suite of services. And this is all privately run, but they get job retraining if they need it. They find out where are their job openings, what do they need to do to apply. And so it goes beyond simply providing income support to actually helping individuals find their next job. Um, Germany has had a very successful government-run system that operates in many ways very similarly, and it's through reforms that were implemented in the early 2000s, the so-called Hartz reforms, that has enabled Germany to reduce what was a relatively high unemployment rate, over 11%, now down to about 3.5% today. In both cases, I think there's a lesson that mid-career people can find new new occupations and, and new jobs. But it will take, if we see rapid automation, it's going to take a more comprehensive and organized approach in many countries than we've seen so far. Well, we've talked about skills, so now let's talk about wages. Perhaps I can ask you, Susan, 
What do we actually know about the effects of technology on wages? Well, we know that in history there have been times, uh, including in the first Industrial Revolution, where we've seen technology produce large productivity gains, but wages have stagnated for a period. So in the first half of the 1800s in the U.K., you saw productivity continue to grow, but wages for about 40 years, real wages, were flat for a whole class of workers. Um, In the U.S. more recently, since 1970, you've seen that real wages for goods-producing workers uh, have stagnated even as productivity has soared. So there's no reason that all the gains from automation necessarily are going to benefit workers. And this is a puzzle that economists have been looking at. Why, in fact, is the labor share of income been declining? When we look at our research at MGI, if we just take today's wages, what we see is that in the U.S., most job growth is coming at the high-wage jobs and low-wage jobs and middle-wage jobs on net So the income polarization that's been studied by other economists, notably David Otter, could in fact continue, our results would suggest. Well, I think the key uh, thing, rather than talking about wages, I would rather talk about incomes, because incomes have a variety of sources besides uh, the weekly or monthly wage. And I think the key, or a key, going forward is who owns the robots, (laughs) to be very uh, concrete about it, as robots replace uh, at least some workers in routine jobs, who owns the robots? Because um, first there's an issue of who makes the robots. Of course, that may eventually be other robots that make them, but in the first instance, it's going to be wage earners who make the robots. Uh, but that requires new skills. But a key issue is as productivity goes up due to substitution of capital for labor, who owns the capital? And that uh, goes back to our institutional arrangements, how people are paid, are firms worker-owned, put in quotes, because that can happen in a variety of ways, and do workers benefit from the improved productivity generated by substituting capital for labor. And uh, that's a big issue, and it varies from country to country. It differs according to the pension system and how the pensions are invested uh, in fixed interest uh, securities or equities and so forth. gets way beyond the workplace, but it ends up affecting people's incomes. So we've talked about the rise of the automobile and how that has helped to generate the whole idea of family vacations. But of course, one of the effects of technology over the years has been to increase the amount of leisure and to reduce working hours. Professor Cooper, perhaps you could talk us through that. How does that happen? We should not measure our well-being just by looking at GDP or output, measured output per worker. We should look at the whole life, and uh, of course, one of, as you suggest, one of the dramatic changes taking place over the last century has been a tremendous increase in leisure. That's not just a decline of the working week from 60 hours 125 years ago to 
37 and a half hours in many industries today in the U.S., much lower in Europe. But also you have to think of paid holidays and paid vacations. So you need to look at the whole year, not just the length of the working week. Long being in favor of a four-day work week, probably longer than eight hours, maybe nine hours, uh, but have a long weekend. And we can organize society so that we can do that and still keep things functioning seven hours, seven days a week, made more possible today by computers. Western Europeans are well ahead of Americans in this growth of leisure, taking potential income in the form of more leisure. But Americans have benefited enormously over the last century from the same process. Of course, that does not contribute directly to GDP, but creates the possibility of many new activities, leisure-based activities, uh, which do contribute to GDP. So we get to the last question, which is perhaps the most complicated one. It's around automation, and there's a big debate that this time somehow the technologies that we see, that is artificial intelligence and advanced robotics, will somehow have a different impact on employment than technologies have done in the past. Now, it's a lively debate among technologists and economists, and it'd be very interesting to get your take. Is it possible that this time things could be different? Well, it's a complicated question. So is this time different in terms of the fact that some jobs will be destroyed and others created? No. Is it different in terms of the breadth of sectors of the economy that could be affected? No. The one way that it could be different could be in the speed of the transition. So there's a lot of uncertainty today how fast advances in automation and AI are going to take place, and even how fast companies will adopt them. So, so far, we see absolutely no evidence that companies are adopting new technologies any faster than they ever have over the last 50 years or 60 years. So despite all the advances that we keep reading about in the newspaper, about AI algorithms that can now diagnose pneumonia better than expert radiologists, they can win not only chess games, but games of Go, this is all great. But when you get down to the company level, companies are not any faster than they ever were at integrating new technologies into work processes. And it's a huge investment for them, not only in terms of a capital investment, but also redesigning processes of how they make things. Because a lot of the real gains from automation comes from rethinking how your business operates, not just applying to technology to today's processes. So, so far, we don't think, in fact, that despite all the gains, that this time is going to be different in terms of the speed of adoption. But I would caveat that and say, if, in fact, rapid advances in AI come about largely through machine learning and machines, you know, being able to progress themselves without human input, uh, it could happen that businesses could pick up their pace of adoption. And so we may see a great workforce transition on the scale of what we saw from the agriculture society to the manufacturing society, as more recently from manufacturing into services but on a more compressed time scale, so rather than 
many decades, it could be a faster transition. But again, today I think it's too early to see evidence that it in fact will be faster. But it's one of the things I'm going to watch in, as we go forward. Professor Cooper, what's your take on this? Every period is different from its predecessors. So, of course, it will be different. The question is whether it will be different in, in a fundamental economic sense and social sense, and I agree with Susan. I am very skeptical about the pace of adoption being markedly more rapidly, more rapidly than we've seen in past periods of uh, technical change. And that is for a variety of reasons. Institutions change only slowly. It's hard to turn an existing organization around, no matter what it is. And, of course, leadership is old-fashioned, always, almost always, uh, by definition. And often it takes a generational change in leadership before you get the full benefit of any given technological change. And uh, my guess is that the next two decades will not, in this respect, be markedly different from what we've seen in the past. We will have big technical change, but it will be introduced gradually and not too fast for society to adjust to it with some pain. But that's been the case for the last hundred years also. Well, we'll come to a close with that. Thank you both very much indeed. That was a conversation between Professor Richard Cooper, the Moritz Sipoas Professor of International Economics at Harvard University, and Susan Lund, who's a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute in Washington, D.C. They've been talking about history and technology and what the impact on employment is and has been. This is the most recent in our series of podcasts on the new world of work from the McKinsey Global Institute. I'm Peter Gumbel, and thank you for joining us. Please do keep tuning in, because we'll be having more in this series. And if you're interested in reading our research, you can download it for free from our website, which is www.mckinsey.com MGI. Thank you, and please tune in again. Thanks for listening to The New World of Work by the McKinsey Global Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. <laughs>